As we leave high school, we need to make our voices heard. Today, I was going to talk about TV and media and content because it's something that's very important to me. However under, however, under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally, physically, and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy, before they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world, that decision is made for them by a stranger. A decision that will affect the rest of their lives is made by a stranger. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I'm talking about this today on a day as important as this on a day honoring 12 years of hard academic work, on a day where we are all gathered together, on a day where you are most inclined to listen to a voice like mine, a woman's voice, to tell you that this is a problem, and it's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Thank you. All right, our name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, later in the episode, we're gonna be speaking to Jamie Lombardi. She is a philosophy professor at Bergen County Community College in New Jersey. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, kind of the theoretical side of the argument that was just made in a really, um, you know, passionate, direct human way in that uh, that video. Uh, the argument that's made by people like Judith Jarvis Thompson and Margaret Olivia Little. Uh, so uh, we will be getting into all of that uh, later in, uh, in the episode. Uh, but uh, meanwhile... I, uh, I want to transition a little bit between the two uh, by uh, by watching our uh, our good friend uh, the uh, other Ben uh, Ben Shapiro uh, trying to explain why in his view uh, you know women who are pregnant uh, you know shouldn't have the you know control over their bodies that we would normally expect uh, everybody to have all the time. Game goes like this: At which point should you be able to kill this baby? 
okay, we're going to play a game called when should you be able to kill this baby? Because I've been told by people like Hillary Clinton that you're able to kill this baby all the way up to the very end, right? 32 to 30 weeks, right? And that's when the baby is fully formed. It can be born alive. It is a fully formed human being. I've watched two of them come out of my wife. These are human beings. These are not balls of tissue. These are not clusters of cells. And I'm sick of being told that it's just an abortion. I don't like the euphemisms. It's not a termination of a pregnancy. It's a termination of a human life. Okay, it's a murder of a human being when you're talking about these babies and, and this idea that you get to choose that. Look, you got to choose a lot of things in life. You don't get to choose another human being's death. That's not something you get to choose. So when is it okay to kill this? When is it okay to kill this? Is it okay to kill this thing at week 14 when the heart is pumping several quarts of blood through the body every day? How about week 15 when the baby has an adult's taste buds? How about month four when the bone marrow is beginning to form? How about that? Or how about, the, how about weeks nine and 10? when the baby's teeth are already beginning to form, its fingernails are already beginning to develop. We're talking about two months old, right? The baby can turn the head and frown. The baby can hiccup. Is that okay to kill? How about week four? By the end of the week four, the, the kid is already 10,000 times larger than the fertilized eggs was. There's already the beginnings of eyes and legs and hands. There are already brain waves detectable. Mouth and lips are present. Fingernails are forming. How about week three? By the end of the third week, the kid's backbone and spinal column and nervous system are forming. The liver and kidneys and intestines are beginning to take shape. How about day 22? The heart's already beating with the child's blood, which may be of a different blood type than the mother. So where in here exactly do you think it's okay to murder that kid because you have a personal convenience issue? All right. I should say I'm joined as always by our producer Forrest, and I, I know that he's dying to uh, tell a, a wet ass p word joke here. Actually, I have the. Uh, I don't know. I ended up just just clipping the the part of the um, the the show where he said that. Um, okay. Well, well, we'll watch that in just a second. Yeah, but no, but the 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 joke, of course, being that you know, um, I, I doubt he watched his wife uh, give birth to both of those kids. <laughs> sure, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that obviously doing a little bit of uh, Tiny Ben here as, uh, you know, to little necessary relief uh, after the, uh, the intensity of that valedictorian's uh, speech, uh, which it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and uh, and it's it's very good, though also very surprising that she got that far, you know, without being uh, without being cut off. Uh, but and there's a and there's a you know there's a there's a pretty heroic story where uh, I guess they had approved her original valedictorian speech right before this bill was passed, and then she obviously tore it up and 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 gave this really impassioned speech kind of on the fly, I think, um, like like you know on on super short notice and like not knowing whether they're going to send security or like, you know what I mean? Like, or, or try to get her off the stage or, you know, however they would uh, try to handle that, which they wouldn't necessarily because, you know, she's the valedictorian, but still like, yeah. it wasn't like an high schools that cut off people's mics and stuff and circumstances yeah. all yeah. the time. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, you know, that was a really good way to, to start the episode to, you know, to kind of get that, like, you know, direct human way of, you know, framing it, you know, before going into all of the uh, the intricacies of the arguments, which we're going to do just a little bit of now and a lot more of uh, later in the episode uh, when Jamie joins us. Uh, but I think thinking about this, right, there are, there are two distinct 
issues. Uh, one of them is the one that uh, that uh, Tiny Ben is talking about, uh, which is about fetal personhood, uh, and the other one is uh, about bodily autonomy. And oftentimes, even people who are pro-choice will, you know, they sort of respond more to arguments about one of these than the other, and they'll sort of say the other one is is really just a sort of diversion, or you know, like it's not really the main point. Uh, I would argue that both of them are uh, are fairly important uh, because if you do believe that a fetus at the time of abortion is a fully fledged person, then you know maybe you have a dilemma. Uh, you have a, a right to life uh, on the one hand and a right to control your own body on the other. Uh, we will explore that territory again when uh, when Jamie comes on. Uh, but uh, if you don't even have uh, anything that could be remotely described as a uh, as a person, that dilemma doesn't even come up. Uh, and certainly at six weeks, the idea that that you know that that, that dilemma you know has has come up at all. I mean, regardless of which you think wins, you know, in that in that. Um, that clash, and you know, we could have, you know, we could have that. I obviously have very clear views on that. I'm on team bodily autonomy, you know, but we could have that uh, that discussion. But uh, regardless of what you think about that, uh, clearly at six weeks, it's uh, it's not a issue. The fetus is a very, very, very long time away from having anything like a functioning brain uh, that would be capable of um, having, you know, like even once you start to have a nervous system, you know, actually uh, processing anything as perceptions, feelings, anything, right? Any sort of mental activity at all, you know, that would uh, that would make something a, a person or, you know, even a, you know, like a, a sentient animal. Uh, so on that, on that question, the fetal personhood question, this is the kind of argument that you often uh, get, uh, made, of course, in a particularly strident and ridiculous way, you know, by Tiny Ben, since as his uh, as his way. Uh, and in the uh, the course of making this argument, he's going through all these different stages of fetal development, most of which, by the way, uh, don't even on the face of them have anything to do with any sort of like real moral question, right? I mean, like having like hair or fingernails, you know, I, I, you know, if all your hair and fingernails fall off, that doesn't affect your moral rights in any way uh, that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even seem to. But the main thing he's trying to do is he's trying to blur the line and say, hey, look at all this ambiguity. Where do you where do you draw the line? Where does fetal personhood start? Uh, if you want to say, oh, this isn't a person yet, well, does it start here? Does it start here? Does it start here? Uh, it's not clear, or at least his implication is that it's not clear uh, where the cutoff point is. Now, I think that there are some plausible things you could say about a cutoff point, or at least a sort of range at which reasonable cutoff points would start to ha would start to happen on the fetal personhood question. But put that to one side, uh, assume that he's right, that it really is that ambiguous, Concluding from this, as he seems to want to, that a fetus is a person from the moment of conception, or you know, that a fetus is a person, say, by six weeks when this Texas heartbeat law uh, kicks in, is ridiculous. And it's ridiculous in a way that we can see by looking at the uh, two heads that you see on the screen right now. All right. So, Forrest is bald. Currently, I'm not. Now, look at Forrest's head. Imagine that we add one hair to it. 
would we uh, we would still say you know we would still say it's bald, given the way we use bald. You know, we're laughing really hard in the background that you're you're, you're calling me out like this on uh <laughs> on live. <laughs> one hair, one hair doesn't make him not bald. Two hairs would make him not bald. Three hairs would make him not bald. So where's the cutoff point? It's cutoff point. Uh, if you have at least 3,643 hairs, you're not bald? Probably not. And that's probably not because we picked the wrong number. Like if, oh, no, it's not 3,643. You know, it's 3,749. So if you have 3,749 hairs, you're not bald. And, um, and you know, uh, but if you have only 3,748, then you are. Uh, that you know, that would be ridiculous. Uh, and again, not because we picked the wrong number. So conclusion that you could draw from this is that they're just, um, that one hair more or less can't make a difference. That sounds sort of plausible if you're thinking about that, but there's a problem with the one hair can't make a difference one way or the other principle, which is that if we apply it a million times in a row, starting with a hair head that has no hairs on it, we get the result that you could have you know, that, that you can look like me. You can have much more hair than I could. You can look like, I don't know, Fabio in his heyday and, uh, and, uh, and he would still be bald. So something's clearly gone wrong there. That sort of clash between postulating exact cutoff points sounds ridiculous and um, clearly, uh, clearly it can't be true that one hair makes more, uh, no difference because if you apply that principle enough times, you get the result that there's like no distinction between being bald and not being bald uh, is called the Sorites paradox. And so Sorites is the Greek word for heap. So the original ancient Greek version of this paradox was about how many stones it takes to make a heap of stones. Uh, and what to say about this is controversial that uh, there, there are, you know, analytic philosophers who spend way too much time thinking about what to say about borderline applications of vague terms but one thing that everybody has thought about this agrees on is that it's a mistake to leap from the premise that we're not sure exactly where the cutoff point is between two things, uh, or even maybe that we can't be sure that it's that it's that there's no clear place to draw the line between two things, and the conclusion that, that there's no difference between them, or that the difference doesn't matter, uh, because if we concluded that, then we'd have to say that two rocks lying a foot away from each other on the floor are a pile of rocks or a heap. We'd have to say that, uh, that, that forest is whatever the opposite of bald is haired. Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly the reasoning that tiny Ben is using to conclude that, you know, six week old fetuses um, must be people or, or really that, you know, that uh, personhood begins at the moment of conception is what he's saying. Um, and to see why this is ridiculous, notice that you could just run his exact argument in the other direction. You could say, "Look, um, is a uh, is is a two month old fetus that doesn't even have a working brain yet is that a person? Is a uh, you know two week old fetus that doesn't even have you know this or that physical development yet is that a person?" And then you could say, well, therefore, since clearly it's not a person, a day, like when it's a day old, you know, zygote, uh, then therefore it must not be a person as uh, as a baby who's already been delivered. If you can see what's wrong with that, you should also be able to see what's wrong with what he's saying here. Uh, and that doesn't even get us into the bodily autonomy issue, which honestly I think is the is the heart of uh, 
of the issue from from my perspective uh like what's so like kind of deeply morally offensive what's being captured in that val victorian uh you know uh speech about why it's so disturbing uh to uh for the state to get involved in decisions about uh about pregnancy which is which is, which something is the one time that i think conservatives like ben um give the state that leeway, I feel like. You know what I mean? Like, it's constantly, you know, government needs to be smaller. Government needs to be smaller. They shouldn't have that, you know, control over you. That You have your own autonomy. And then on this issue, because it's such a searing hot cultural issue and a religious issue and, and whatever else, like, all of a sudden, all of those principles about, like, oh, the government can't tell you what to do with your body, like, go out the window. Yeah, I mean, like Grover Norquist, the uh, the guy who got all those Republican politicians to sign that pledge saying they would never increase taxes under any circumstances, no matter what, um, you know, famously said that he wants, go you know, he doesn't want to destroy government, but he wants it to be small enough that you could drown it in the bathtub. But it's like, okay, uh, I don't know what I don't know what Grover's position is on uh, reproductive autonomy, but uh, or you know, but certainly for many of the Republicans who signed his pledges. Uh, so we want government that's uh, small enough to drown in a bathtub, but also still still somehow uh, large enough uh, to uh, to to enter into what's going on, you know, like literally inside somebody's body. And, yeah. and, and, and I mean, you know, similarly with the death penalty, which is another issue that comes up uh, constantly, like the state literally having ownership of your body. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like I, I guess there's a there's a body blindness to it or something you can say. But um you know, conservatives suddenly, uh, you know, these these uh, more reactionary issues, they suddenly fall back and, and give the state full control. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, actually, there's a really good, uh, that reminds me, there's a debate uh, from the 90s about the death penalty with Christopher Hitchens and Jesse Jackson on one side of it and a couple of guys from the National Review on the other. We should do some Sunday night for the Sunday night debate breakdown. Uh, because you know, Hitch makes exactly that argument that you know that you just made in the. Uh, in yeah, the video. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to join for that one. I like. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know about the you know the state asserting ownership over your body, and we should be careful here too because uh, it could be easy, I think, for people in left media to spend um, to get so focused on pointing out their enemies. Uh, ideological hypocrisy uh, that they sort of treat that as if that's the uh, that's the game that's the that's like the goal, uh, yeah. they, and I think that that's a mistake for a couple of reasons. One of which is that, like, oftentimes when we correctly point out that they're inconsistent about something, there's the worries like, okay, are we just being equally inconsistent but in the opposite direction? You know that like if if they oh well, they say this about that but they don't say it about the other things like okay well what are our positions and they line up but in this case I think they do. Uh, because, you know, I think that the, the core of, of any kind of socialist, you know, project uh, about, you know, human emancipation uh, is about freedom from domination. Uh, that's, that's the, you know, that like when, when Marx and Engels say in the Communist Manifesto that the free development of each is the condition of the free development of all, you know, that's the kind of freedom they're, they're talking about that small r republican theory of freedom we talked about last year with alex gurovich and matt carp uh and uh and as far as as uh, as freedom from from domination goes obviously we care about that at the workplace uh we we care about that you know in terms of the prevention of economic inequality that can you know lead to leave some people vulnerable uh to um uh to dom you know unreasonable domination by others in order to make a living 
but we damn for sure care about it in the context of what goes on uh, inside your uh, inside your body. I mean, if you don't at least have that, right? You know, you don't have much uh, as far as uh, as freedom from uh, from domination goes, and you know, and I think that you know sometimes. Um, Sometimes some people on the left are way too eager to cede that kind of thing to uh, to libertarians, you know, to uh, to say, okay, well, maybe they're the ones who care uh, about, you know, your your ownership of yourself, you know, like all these basic rights of, you know, individuals. Uh, you know, we care about this other stuff like equality and, you know, compassion and uh, and, and that kind of justice. Uh, but that's way too quick. I think that uh, I think that if I think that if you don't even have if if we want to give everybody more control over their lives, you know, um, economically and otherwise, then, you know, you, again, how much control over your life do you have if you, uh, if you aren't, if you aren't even autonomous in what goes on in your body? And, you know, we can make a distinction like the Marxist philosopher G.A. Cohen uh, taught, you know, has this great example about the uh, eyeball lottery. Imagine that uh, some future, you know, science fiction dystopia, we got really, really good, at uh, curing blindness by transplanting eyeballs from the eye sockets of uh, sighted people to the eye sockets of blind people. And so in order to make sure that everybody had at least one working eyeball, there was a, a lottery like the Vietnam era draft lottery and the unlucky winners uh, had to have one of their eyeballs forcibly taken out and uh, transplanted. Uh, and there's a sort of case that you can make for that for, you know, about fairness, but there's also um but uh, presumably, you know, we'd still all be against that uh, because, you know, because we can make a distinction between the sort of libertarian claim, which is that you have a right to every single dollar in your bank account and the claim that you have a right to, you know, your eyeballs. You have a right to uh, control what goes on, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in your womb, you know, like those sorts of rights uh, are things that we care about. And if we want this wider sphere of autonomy, uh, you know, for damn sure we need to at least start with that. But um, enough about Ben Shapiro. Uh, we, you know, this we've we've wasted enough time on this right wing crank. Uh, let's talk about Jordan Peterson. So, it's uh, there we go. <laughs> yep. All right, we're at day nineteen on the lobster clock for people who don't know what we're talking about. Uh, this is um, nineteen days ago. Uh, Jordan Peterson um, tweeted out a uh, review of my book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Uh, and uh, I don't actually know if he read the review or he just read the tweet about the, uh, about the review. That could really go either way. Uh, I am 100% certain that he did not read the book. Uh, if you... Um, if you want to know what the reaction is of a conservative who actually did read the book, uh, you can uh, you can check out some of the uh, angrier reviews on the Amazon page. But uh, but if you look at some of those uh, some of those uh, one and two star reviews, you know you you find people who got excited by the phrase "a critique of the contemporary left" in the title, and then were uh, were were shocked and horrified that this you know that this wasn't like Dave Rubin's. Uh, critique of the contemporary left that it was the opposite of that they're like oh my god uh 
you know, Ben thinks that the police are racist and, uh, and, and he's critical of Antifa, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't admit that like, it's, it's actually worse than the, uh, than the fascists, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, cause of course the spirit in which the book is written is the spirit of like, you know, what our late brother, Michael Brooks said on, uh, one of the first episodes of the Jacobin weekend show last year, uh, when, um, you know, he had a great line about how saying that uh, somebody who's criticizing the left is against the left uh, is ridiculous, especially if the whole purpose of the criticism is that they want the left to win. He said that's like saying that a basketball coach who uh, makes his team do drills is against the team. Uh, but in any case, um, the specific reason, even beyond that, that I'm sure that Jordan Peterson didn't read the book, is there are about three pages that are about him and they're not complimentary. Uh, so he uh, he tweeted out this review, uh, and uh, he said, uh, here we go, only the best of the left can save us from the worst of the left, and the clock keeps ticking. Uh, in response to this, I, uh, I posted the uh, uh, screen grabs of the pages from the book that are about him, pointed out that as much as I appreciate the compliment, uh, he, he might be surprised to learn that he has some pretty profound differences uh, with me. Uh, but I would be more than happy to discuss those differences at a time and place of his choosing, uh, online or off. And oddly enough, it's been 19 days, and he hasn't responded to this, which I'm very confused by, because uh, if he's going to talk to anybody on the left, it should be the best of the left, uh, which you can see right there. He says, you know, I'm the best of the left. Uh, so I, I don't know if he's going to have a discussion with somebody about these differences. You'd, you'd think it would, you know, you'd think it'd be the best of the left, but somehow or another, 19 days have gone by and he hasn't responded. Um, maybe he forgot. So, you know, I mean, if, if you have an opportunity to remind him, go ahead and do that. But the, uh, the particular reason that, um, that I, I, I find all this funny is that he has had various other reasons in the past. You know, he, he debated Zizek, uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, he has had various uh, reasons in the past for not being willing to uh, to talk to uh, to anybody on the left. And I, frankly, I got to say, in Zizek's case, uh, I kind of think that part of the uh, the reason is that he probably didn't quite realize how bad that was going to be for him. Uh, that uh, he says. Um, that uh, that I don't think that he um, I think maybe he saw some Zizek videos. He was like, okay, here's this guy with this strong accent and a lot of kind of eccentric mannerisms, and he's into continental philosophy and Lacanian psychoanalysis. I don't take him very seriously, and I don't think he's going to say anything that's going to make me look too bad. Uh, that would that would be my you know cynical take on that. Beyond the fact, of course, that you know. Also, he knew that Zizek was going to be a big draw. Uh, yeah, but I mean, there's also, you know, the the whole, like, Zizek uh, made, made the quote about Hillary and Trump, and, and you know, that was twisted into Zizek supports Trump, and, you know, all of the identity politics videos. I'm sure, I don't think Jordan Peterson went that deeply, but I'm sure whoever uh, did suggest um, that debate to him and, and his team, like, you know, probably looked into some of that stuff, um, rather than, like, you know, some of the, some of the, the deeper... Uh, you know, so, some of the deeper philosophical stuff that Zizek puts out there. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, do we have the clip of, uh, of Peterson responding to the invitation from uh, Richard Wolf? The question is whether or not the past is over. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. Marxist, exactly. Marxist philosopher named Richard Wolf who 
challenged me recently on YouTube to a, a debate and really the answer that I posted was this forward and he accused me of being stuck in the past you know it's well the you know the the, the wall fell in 1989 and the horrors of the Soviet era are over and we 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 can't uh, paint we can't eternally tar Marxism with the brush of these past events I mean as if these events are over or as if 50 years is sufficient time to forget about the corpses but that's his idea you know and to me it's the same idea that you might put forward if you were a neo-nazi by saying that well you know all that happened back in 1945 the fundamental doctrine was sound and we can't allow our judgment about these eternal truths manifested in the national socialist doctrine to be forever tainted by some unfortunate historical events and I think that that's just well I, I don't even know what to say about it I mean one of the telling things about his comments was that he only talked about the Soviet Union and not all the other terrible places that the same doctrine had been implemented with equally murderous effects and so that was quite the argument by evasion but I what I tried to yeah so um and above and beyond everything else you can say about that and also makes it very funny that he was willing to debate Zizek even though he wasn't willing to debate Wolf uh because honestly out of the two of them um you know Wolf is much more stridently anti-Stalinist uh you know when he talks about that subject you know Zizek is much more open to sort of ambiguity and 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 you know irony and and sort of playing with layers of nuance and Wolf is much more directly like no that's not what I want. Here's the problem. Uh, but the other reason that I find that funny, uh, you know, beyond the inconsistency about who he's willing to talk to, is notice in that clip, Peterson says that he wouldn't talk to someone like Richard Wolf, even though Richard Wolf is like unambiguously anti-Stalinist, even though Richard Wolff talks about the importance of democracy all the time. Uh, but he wouldn't talk to Richard Wolff because Marx, Wolff is a Marxist and Marxism is eternally tarred uh, by the atrocities committed by Stalinist regimes in the Soviet Union and elsewhere. Okay, even though, of course, Karl Marx was dead for several decades uh, by the time any of that happened. But notice that Peterson does not apply these same standards to other philosophers whose ideas were taken up by authoritarian regimes, uh, most obviously. Uh, well, okay, so two, two examples are he, he cites Nietzsche all the time. Uh, he obviously doesn't agree with Nietzsche about some important topics, but he uh, but uh, he, he, he cites Nietzsche in a very positive way. He seems to think Nietzsche has some very real insights. And you know, the Nazis, you know, were pretty into Nietzsche. Uh, and, you know, it's a similar kind of historical gap. But also, he's really into Martin Heidegger. Uh, in fact, very into Martin Heidegger. If you notice, and uh, if you read like uh, 12 Rules for Life, uh, throughout that book, Peterson capitalizes the B at the beginning of the word being, which is a Heidegger tribute because uh, Heidegger's concept of Dasein. Uh, usually translated as being, like the, the title of his most famous book, Being and Nothingness, you know, that gets capitalized. So being, being gets capitalized uh, for um, 
for Jordan Peterson. And unlike, you know, Karl Marx, who uh, didn't praise or support any dictators who were alive at the time that he was, who never liked any uh, head of state enough to, to, to send him a uh, yeah, so much as a friendly telegram, except the democratically elected Abraham Lincoln, who he liked for anti-slavery reasons, uh, whose explicit model of a post-revolutionary uh, government was the ultra-democratic Paris Commune, Heidegger was a member of the Nazi party. Uh, and that takes us to the uh, preview, uh, which is the last thing we're going to do before Jamie comes on for the patron bonus episode uh, for this week. Uh, so I am uh, in the preview. I'm speaking to uh, our, our friend, the philosopher, uh, Eckhart Erkin. He's been on before for a Sunday Night Debate Breakdown. He was on when we were uh, breaking down Matt Taibbi's uh, debate with uh, RJ Esco about Herbert Marcuse. Uh, and he's back here once again to talk about Marcuse uh, because uh, Herbert Marcuse is, of course, a... Uh, heterodox but Marxist uh, thinker, uh, one of the main figures in, in the Frankfurt School, uh, was uh, Martin Heidegger's student in uh, the late 20s and very early 30s. Uh, and in 1947, uh, Heidegger and Marcuse uh, were, you know, are corresponding about uh, Heidegger's role during the Third Reich. Uh, and it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty amazing exchange. So, uh, over the course of the rest of the episode, we break down the content and talk about it, but we're just going to play the part here uh, where uh, Eckett and I actually read aloud the letters. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get into this. Uh, so the first of these letters is uh, from Marcuse to, uh, to Heidegger. It's dated uh, August 28th. 1947. Uh, here you can you can read uh, you can read Heidegger. I'll be uh, The you'll you'll notice I I stuck you with the Nazis. So, um, dear uh, Mr. Heidegger, I have uh, thought for a long time about what you told me uh, during my visit uh, to Totenberg, uh, and I would uh, like to write you about it quite openly. You told me that you had full, fully disassociated yourself from the Nazi regime as of 1934. That in your lectures, you made extremely critical remarks and that you were observed by the Gestapo. I will not doubt your word, but the fact remains that in 1933, you identified yourself so strongly with the regime that today in the eyes of many, you're considered as one of its strongest intellectual proponents. Your own speeches, writings, and treatises for this period are proof thereof. You have never publicly retracted them, not even after 1945. You have never publicly explained that you have arrived at judgments other than those which you expressed in 1933 to 34 and articulated in your writings. You remained in Germany after 1934, although you could have found a position abroad practically anywhere. You never publicly denounced any of the actions or ideologies of the regime. Because of those circumstances, you are still today identified with the Nazi regime. Many of us have long awaited a statement from you, a statement that would clearly and finally free you from such identification, a statement that honestly expresses your current attitude about the events that have occurred. But you have never uttered such a statement, at least as it has never emerged uh, beyond uh, your private sphere. I, and very many others, have admired you as a philosopher. From you, we have learned an infinite amount. But we cannot make a separation between Heidegger the philosopher and Heidegger 
the man, for it contradicts your own philosophy. A philosopher can be deceived regarding political matters, in which case he will openly acknowledge his error. But he cannot be deceived about a regime that has killed millions of Jews merely because they are Jews, that made terror into an everyday phenomenon, and that turned everything that pertains to the ideas of spirit, freedom, and truth into its bloody opposite. A regime that in every respect imaginable was the deadly caricature of the Western tradition that you yourself so forcefully explicated and justified. And if that regime was not the caricature of that tradition, but its actual culmination, in this case too, there could be no deception for then you would have to indict and disavow this entire tradition. Is this really the way you would like to be remembered in the history of ideas? Every attempt to combat this cosmic misunderstanding founders on the generally shared resistance to taking seriously a Nazi ideologue. Common sense, also among intellectuals, which bears witness to such resistance, refuses to view you as a philosopher because philosophy and Nazism are irreconcilable. In this conviction, common sense is justified. Once again, you and we could only combat the identification of your person and your work with Nazism and thereby the dissolution of your philosophy if you make public avowal of your changed views. This week, I'll send off a package to you. My friends have strongly recommended against it and have accused me of helping a man who identified with a regime that sent millions of my co-religionists to the gas chamber. In order to forestall misunderstandings, I would like to observe that I was not only an anti-Nazi because I was a Jew, but also would have been one from the very beginning on political, social, and intellectual grounds, even if I had been 100% Aryan. Nothing can counter this argument. I excuse myself in the eyes of my own conscience by saying that I'm sending a package to a man from whom I learned philosophy from 1928 to 1932. I am myself aware that this is a poor excuse. The philosopher of 1933 to 34 cannot be completely different from the one prior to 1933. All the less so insofar as you expressed and grounded your enthusiastic justification of the Nazi state in philosophical terms. All right, you want to uh, you want to do Heidegger? Yes, and before doing that, I should just say I, I think that Marcuse uh, was pretty articulate there. Yeah, yeah, that was that was uh, you know that was not uh, not mincing words. Um, like it's it's a very uh, straightforward um, you know it's a very straightforward kind of case, but you know it's 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 very uh, it's very clearly stated. Right. All right. Heidegger to Marcuse, Freiburg, January 20th, 1948. Freiburg being where the letter is sent from. The package that you mentioned in your letter of 28 August has arrived. I thank you for it. I think that it accords with your and your friends' wishes that I have had the entire contents distributed to former students who are neither in the party nor had any other connections to National Socialism. In their names, too, I thank you for your help. If I may infer from your letter that you are seriously concerned with reaching a correct judgment about my work and person, then your letter shows me precisely how difficult it is to converse with persons who have not been in Germany since 1933, who judge the beginning of the National Socialist Movement from its end. Regarding the main points of your letter, I would like to say the following. One, concerning 1933. I expected from National Socialism a spiritual renewal of life in its entirety, a reconciliation of social antagonisms, and a deliverance of Western Dasein from the dangers of communism. 
These convictions were expressed in my rectoral address. Have you read this in its entirety? In a lecture on the essence of scholarship and in two speeches to students of Freiburg University. There was also an election appeal of approximately 25 to 30 lines published in the Freiburg student newspaper. Today, I regard a few of the sentences as misleading. Two, in 1934, I recognized my political error and resigned my rectorship in protest against the state and party. That number one, i.e. Heidegger's party activities, was exploited for propaganda purposes, both here and abroad, and that number two, his resignation, hushed up for equally propagandistic reasons, failed to come to my attention and cannot be held against me. Three, you are entirely correct that I failed to provide a public, readily comprehensible counter-declaration. It would have been the end of both me and my family. On this point, Jasper said that we remain alive is our guilt. Four, in my lectures and courses from 1933 to 1944, I incorporated a standpoint that was so unequivocal that among those who were my students, none fell victim to Nazi ideology. My works from this period, if they are ever published, will testify to this fact. Five, an avowal after 1945 was for me impossible. The Nazi supporters announced their change of allegiance in the most loathsome way. I, however, had nothing in common with them. Six, to the grave justified accusations that you express, quote, about a regime that murdered millions of Jews, that made terror into an everyday phenomenon, and that turned everything that pertains to the ideas of spirit, freedom, and truth into its bloody opposite, unquote, I can merely add that if instead of, quote, Jews, unquote, you had written, quote, East Germans, unquote, i.e. Germans of the Eastern Territories, then the same holds true for one of the Allies, with the difference that everything that has occurred since 1945 had become public knowledge, while the bloody terror of the Nazis, in point of fact, had been kept a secret from the German people. In conclusion, I would like to ask you to consider that today, too, there is false propaganda. For example, that rumors are spread that contradict the truth. I have learned about positively nonsensical defamations about me and my work. I thank you for the open expression of your misgivings about me. I can only hope that you will someday find again in my works the philosopher with whom you studied and worked. With my best greetings, Martin Heidegger. Yeah. Uh, so I guess a, a couple of, of initial thoughts there. First of all, uh, the idea that the uh, that later publications were going to make him look better in this period, um, I, I'll, you know, not so much. Black notebooks they did not they did not help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the uh, the yeah the stuff that was published just a uh, just a few years ago is is uh, is pretty bad, right? I mean, it's it's like there's a lot of like, hey, just in case this wasn't clear when I said this, what I meant was the Jews. Uh, so, uh, so that, that didn't, you know, uh, that didn't really, it doesn't really, uh, strengthen the case that he's making to Marcuse. Uh, also, uh, so, so this is like, all right. I mean, I guess, uh, he's, he certainly doesn't, is expressing not liking, you know, some of, you know, some of the atrocities that the uh, Nazis committed, but, uh, this is this is also not like the most unequivocal. Like even in his letter 
to his Jewish socialist former students, right? Which which is where you you think he'd be the most, um, you know, like eager to to disassociate himself with this. This is not exactly a, an unequivocal, uh, you know, renunciation of those views. All right, uh, so you can watch the rest of the uh, discussion with Ekin, where we, we read uh, Barcuse's uh, letter back to uh, to Heidegger and we go over the whole thing and kind of analyze the many strange things that Heidegger says in that letter uh, in the uh, bonus episode that is dropping for patrons on Thursday. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, we have uh, Jamie Lombardi, who is on here to talk to us about uh, the uh, you know sort of classic philosophy papers about abortion. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Jamie. Thanks so much for inviting me, Ben. How are you? I am pretty good. So uh, I'm excited about this. Uh, let's um, let's start off uh, with the uh, the one that's uh, the case for the opposition. Uh, so if anybody who's ever taken like an introductory ethics class, uh, if they were, uh, you know, if there were, if this is a topic that was covered, uh, this is probably the pro-life paper that they read. It's, uh, you know, Why Abortion is Immoral by Don Markey. So what's the, uh, what's, what's the case that, that like, like this is supposed to be the kind of best articulation of the uh, the case for the opposition here. Uh, why does Don Markey think that abortion is immoral? Um, so what this paper ultimately comes down to, Marquis concludes that abortion is impermissible because it would deny fetuses embryos of what he calls a future of value. And he thinks this avoids some of the more standard objections to the, I'm going to call them the forced birth um, arguments. I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table right out in front. I'm a partisan in this. Yeah. Um, and he he thinks this overcomes some of the advantages. It doesn't um, appeal to like the sanctity of life. It's not that life itself um, is worthy of protecting. He also thinks this preserves um, the possibility for, um, oh, what's it called? Not euthanasia, but when someone assi uh, assisted suicide. Yeah. So he yeah. thinks it, it covers um, assisted suicide. If you have a hard line sanctity of life argument, um, you're going to have to be against a physician assisted suicide. Um, he thinks this also uh, helps distinguish why, for example, chemotherapy is okay, because you're not relying on it just being a combination of human cells. Um, and you're not just relying on like the biological human nature of, of persons to get at the, the conclusion that abortion is immoral. Yeah. So, so this, the reason this is, I mean, obviously, you know, we both find it ultimately pretty unconvincing, but this is the reason this is maybe the, the best of the lot uh, is that very often um, arguments you know, for forced birth uh, take the, uh, you know, take the form of saying that uh, fetus, you know, a human fetus is a human life and, you know, human, you know, human life uh, has, uh, has, has innate value. Uh, which, I, you know, I mean, Marquis kind of goes through some of this ground in the first part of the paper, uh, gets you into some pretty strange places. I mean, if you think that, you know, human, that something being alive and human 
is all that uh, ultimately matters. I mean, one thing is that you're excluding things that we surely want to include. Like if uh, if the aliens from Star Trek existed, you know, then, then presumably we think that they had a right to life. You know, you, you couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't like murder Vulcans and slice them up for, you know, Vulcan burgers. Uh, <laughs> no, they're not human lives. They have completely different, you know, evolutionary history. Uh, and then conversely, yeah, you gave the chemotherapy example. I mean, we could even just do this sort of really goofy, like if um, scientists found a way to keep a human arm alive at a laboratory, it would be alive and human, but be really weird to say that it had a, an innate right to life because of that. Yeah, and so he thinks he avoids all of these complications, and he's particularly pleased because even though he says in the paper that he thinks ultimately this is going to come down to fetal personhood, he thinks, you know, one of the advantages of this paper is that it sidesteps that, that you don't need a fetus to be a person in order for that fetus to have a future of value. And he goes through a number of different examples. Um, you know, some of them are are interesting, and they're, they're good to teach to, to philosophy students to get them thinking through this. I always start when I do teach abortion, although I didn't do it um, in the plague timeline. Um, but it, it's good to get students thinking through these. So he goes through a number of objections. Um, like there, someone says that, um, you know, you can't value your future unless you're aware of having a future or you desire to have that future. And he says, well, that's ridiculous. We understand, you know, why when people are sleeping, they aren't actively desiring their future, and yet it would still be impermissible um, to, to murder them. And perhaps his most compelling counter or counter argument to this is he uses the example of someone who is experiencing suicidal ideation. And he says, this is a person who clearly does not desire their own future, but it would still be impermissible to kill them. And so this shows that one need not desire their own future or think there is anything good in it in order for that future to, in fact, be of value and it to be a serious moral wrong to take it from them. Yeah, and, and there is something that, that's compelling about this account of why it's wrong to kill, you know, anyone ever that, uh, you know, because, which, yeah, sometimes I'm sure you've had the same experience, like I'll go over this stuff in class and I'll ask people, all right, give me your best shot, explain why it's wrong to kill people. And they'll go through all these things like, uh, well, killing, you know, they experience pain while you're killing them. It's like, okay, well, kill them in their sleep painlessly. You know, well, why, why is that wrong? Uh, and I said, well, the people who are left behind will be very sad. It's like, okay, I mean, are, are we allowed to kill friendless orphans? You know, that, that's, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem okay. Uh, and, and Marquis, you know, Marquis has a, a very simple answer to this, that you're, you're taking away something from, uh, from a person by, by killing them. You're taking away these, as you say, valuable, uh, this, this potentially valuable future. Uh, and that's something that, uh, a fetus has, even if a fetus isn't a person yet, you know, the, the fact that it will become a person if allowed to develop into one uh, is enough to have this valuable future that it can be deprived of. Yeah. And so he thinks that is like the, the tractable moral characteristic that obtains when we have fetuses and therefore any entity that has a future of value, it would be wrong to kill because you're denying them this future of value. Fetuses have a future of, val of value, therefore killing fetuses is wrong. And he goes through some of the different um, 
you know, theories of what makes killing wrong. He he goes through the desire account and the discontinuation account. Um, and then I always like to draw my students' attention to this because he dismisses um, the desire account and he says, the, discontinu the discontinuation account looks more promising as an account of the wrongness of killing, but it doesn't justify an anti-abortion ethic. And this is a really good example of like one philosopher's modus tonens is another philosopher's modus ponens because maybe then what we need to reject is the anti-abortion ethic if this account doesn't hold up. But Marquis does not, um, he does not consider that. Yeah, uh, just to uh, just to make sure everybody gets the uh, the joke. So modus ponens is when you say, if A, then B, A, therefore B. Modus tollens is when you say, if A, then B, not B. So not A, uh, which, you know, so he's he's saying, well, this would be, yeah, I, I wouldn't get to have the anti-abortion ethic if I, if I had to have, you know, if if I went to this other idea and you'd say, oh, okay, so, you know, there's, there's another way of resolving this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the other, you know, I, w I will say another thing that always bothered me about this, this paper. I mean, I don't think, and we'll get to when we, we start talking about Thompson, I don't think it's even the most important thing that's wrong with it. But um, there's the point where he sort of considers the objection that um, you don't even have to be a, a fertilized egg to have a valuable future. You, you could just be a uh, like a sperm egg pair, right? That that hasn't met yet. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. So this is the part of the paper that's really weird because he wants to say that his future value um, doesn't. Um, preclude the possibility of using contraception. But it's sort of arbitrary the way that he tries to thread this needle where he's like, well, you can't just pick one sperm. And so clearly that can't be it. And you know, you, you, you can't just have an egg in the absence of a sperm. And so therefore, you know, contraception is still moral. But he does this really weird threading of the needle here where I don't think he's meeting his own standards. Yeah, because because he says, uh, you know, correctly that, well, okay, if if the sperm egg pair that hasn't yet come into contact uh, has a uh, has a right to, um, you know, like that, it, you know, it would be wrong to deprive this of a valuable future. Then we've got, you know, now we, I, I don't know what the numbers are. We've got a million, you know, uh, you know, candidates, you know, that uh, that have potentially valuable futures. And that just seems like, yeah, right. I mean, if, if all that matters is having, like, it, it seems like you, you almost, you sort of have to pick, right? Either just having um, at least the potential to have a valuable future is enough, in which case, yeah, all million of them have this right, or there's some sort of antecedent thing that you need. There's some sort of sp status that you have to have uh, to have, like, there's something that has to be presently true of you to have moral status, in which case, um, and then like the issue of whether you're being deprived of something only arises if you have that thing. And if we're going with the second option, then yeah, we, we can avoid saying that all million of these pairs have the thing, but then like, why do fertilized eggs have it? Why not, you know, why not wait till you have, you know, working brains or something like that? Right. And one could easily imagine that you could say, okay, well, maybe not all of these millions of sperm have the right to life, but surely each egg, there's an obligation to fertilize it because, you know, the eggs are relatively rare. There's only, you know, one per month. They're only viable for a much shorter period of a woman's life, unlike 
men who can produce sperm throughout their whole life. So, you know, you could make an argument based on Marquis' account that like you are, it's morally obligatory to fertilize all those eggs, which seems sort of weird. It does. And I mean, I think we can even sharpen it and say, all right, maybe we don't have a different duty to fertilize them all. But at the very, you know, like, I, I mean, it would be a little bit like, okay, even with people, there's, you know, unfortunately, in my view, controversy about whether you have a, you, whether you have a moral obligation to make sure that people have the things that they need in order to, uh, to have a valuable future. Uh, but uh, at the very least, we would all agree that it'd be very wrong to do things on purpose specifically to deprive people of food, for example, so uh, so that they won't have a future. And so if you're using contraception, you are doing something to deprive the ovum of the possibility of having this, this valuable future. You're doing it specifically to, uh, to, to prevent that possibility. So if we think having the potential for a valuable future is enough to have moral rights, you know, why isn't that wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and these are so so these two things that like okay so there's the desire account his his explanation for why you shouldn't go with that seems a little um, you know backwards uh, at least depending on your initial intuitions about this case and his reason for saying that you know an unfertilized egg doesn't have moral rights seems a little arbitrary given uh, given the rest of what he's saying but also you could in principle agree with everything uh, that uh, that Marquis says in this paper, more or less, except for like the sentences where he's like, therefore abortion is generally morally wrong and still uh, and still disagree with those sentences. Cause, uh, cause you could say, all right, he has established, uh, you know, for the sake of argument, he's, uh, he's established that a, uh, that a zygote has, um, has the same sort of all else being equal, right to life that we all do. But even if that were the case, that would just mean that we had two rights that were in conflict with each other. And that kind of brings us to Judith Jarvis Thompson. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what the two things that I'll, that I'll say about Marquis just before we move on, my biggest objection to this paper is that he talks about fetuses and embryos and gestation as though they exist in this sort of like, magical ether space. And there is no acknowledgement whatsoever anywhere that these fetuses are residing in another person's body. There's there's no acknowledgement of that. There's no acknowledgement of the person who is pregnant's future of value and how pregnancy can impact that at all. And right in the very beginning of the paper, he says, I'm going to set aside the hard cases of, of rape and incest, and I'm not going to touch on that. And it's like, well, why not? Because if it's a if it's a future of value that's motivating this argument, then like rape fetuses have just as much value in their future as non-rape fetuses. And so if you're going to make this distinction, or if your argument is going to break down in what you call the hard cases, maybe your argument's not that good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess his, I guess what he thinks is that he's established that, you know, fetuses generally have a right to life, and then, you know, and then maybe there, there are exceptions, but, uh, but he's at least assuming that he's established the, um, that the uh, the default 
is uh, is is yes that you know that there has to be some particular reason in these cases uh, to think no, but you you might think well look thinking about some of the reasons why we might think that in in the uh, in the instance of rape uh, that uh, that pregnant uh, women shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be legally obliged to uh, to carry the pregnancy to term, you might think that those general reasons apply to uh, apply to uh, uh, to abortion in general, uh, which is uh, which is Thompson's uh, point. So so the first one of the first things that Thompson says, uh, so this is Judas Jarvis Thompson, a, a defense of abortion, uh, which I think is like uh, I, I wrote an I wrote an obituary for Thompson last year for Jacobin when I was looking this up then I saw the claim a couple places that this is like the most anthologized ethics paper ever. So. It's it definitely seems like if it's either this or the trolley problem has to be right 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 so famous of so, philosophy papers. So between the two, one way or the other. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So in um, and in this paper, the the first you know like one of the first things that uh, that she says at the beginning uh, is that it would. Um, Oh, sorry. We are all right. One of the first things she says at the uh, at the very beginning is, um, "I'm inclined." Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, here we go. Um, the we are asked to notice. Uh, so this is pretty much the Ben Shapiro argument we looked at earlier that the development of a human being from conception through birth into childhood is continuous. Uh, then it is said that to draw a line, to choose a point in this development and say before this point, the thing is not a person after this point it is a person is to make an arbitrary choice, a choice for which is the nature of things that no good reason can be given. Uh, it is concluded that the fetus is or any way that we'd better say it is a person from the moment of conception. But this conclusion does not follow. Similar things might be said about the development of an acorn into an oak tree. And it does not follow that acorns are oak trees or that we'd better say that they are. So she she does make clear like right at the get-go that she that she's not ready to to concede fetal personhood, that that's not her point, that she thinks that that's actually true, at least of of uh early term uh fetuses. Uh but her strategy in the paper is to say, well, let's uh let's assume for the sake of argument, let's pretend that it was true. That uh, that every discussion about abortion is a discussion about uh, killing a uh, an entity that 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 actually does have all the moral you know all the you know that all else being equal would have all the moral rights of a person. It still doesn't follow in the way that you think it might, right? So, or we could say it still wouldn't even follow from Don Marquis's valuable future thing in the way that Don Marquis seems to think that it does. That person or thing that has all the moral rights of a person, whether or not it's exactly a person yet, therefore uh, right to life that, that, you know, that would be strong enough to justify saying that abortion is wrong or, or, you know, much less than abortion should be made illegal. Yeah. And so the basic setup of this is she imagines, you know, you wake up one morning and um, you are attached to another person and, you know, you've, you've, 
done nothing to bring this about yourself, right? But upon waking, you are informed that if you stay attached to this person for, you know, we'll call it nine months, um, they'll live, they'll be fine. But if you disconnect from this person, they're going to die. And in this example, they're a very famous violinist. So they're not just a person, they're a person of, you know, extra moral status, I guess. Um, <laughs> if I have more moral status than the rest of us, is that because uh, because if so, I would have stuck with music lessons earlier in my life. I'm not sure about that. Perhaps I guess I'm not sure. Um, okay. So I think the point that she's motivating here, I think, is is that this isn't just you know like a regular person where this is like a special person because we have to have them in, in categories, I guess. Um, and she says it seems that even in this case where we don't just have a person, but like, you know, this special violinist person that you don't have a moral obligation to stay connected. Yes, it would be super erogatory if you did, and maybe you would be, you know, noble and admirable, but there's no moral obligation to do so. In other words, you don't act wrongly if you say, mm, disconnect me. Yeah, right. Um, so I think, uh, actually Forrest had a short video clip, uh, for us for, uh, for this, but, uh, maybe we'll watch that in a minute. Um, oh, now we got it. All right. So this is, so, um, there, there is this sort of, um... all right. So this is from a, um, let's see, let me make sure I've, uh, I've got this, uh, Forrest, do you want to pop up for a second and contextualize this for us? Yeah, so originally I was looking for um, a Ben Shapiro clip that claims to be out there, but apparently was not out there. So what I found is um, these very creepy uh, right-wing Christian anti-abortion activists um, that uh, Philosophy Tube uh, had quoted, like had shown a video of in one of her videos. Um, so this is kind of a, a, a breakdown of some of the arguments against um, the violinist theory. I, I mean, you know, I don't think that it, you know, it's kind of very Christiany. So the 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 moral arguments are not, um, you know, the moral arguments uh, take them as you will, I guess. All right, let's let's give it a quick watch. Moral dilemma, sometimes known as the the, the violinist mm -hmm. kind of objection. Yeah. Um, so imagine that it's a woman who wakes up and somehow this violinist who has some kind of need for dialysis or some kind of need yep. for to be attached to her body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He is parasitic upon her mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she wakes up and she's now connected to him. If yep. she removes him from herself, yep. he will perish and die. Yep. Yep. Is she morally obligated to yep. stay attached to him for let's say nine months? Mm -hmm. um, what should she do? And, sh and could we ever blame her if she mm -hmm. wanted to detach yep. that violinist from her? So it's, it's a really great question, and analogies are, are fine. It doesn't have to be identical to be valid. Uh, the question is, is it an appropriate analogy? Um, and a, a number of points, I think it's, it's actually not. Um, firstly, if I was standing on the street and a child walked past me, someone else's kid, and walked around the corner and something bad happened to them, say they, they got hit by a car, people would not hold me accountable. Why? Because it's not my kid. That's just a stranger. Um, However, if it was my own child, say it was a three-year-old, and say I, I, I walked into a shop and just left my three-year-old out there, you know, because I only want to get something sorted, and, and I come back and she's been abducted, mm. or something's happened to her, mm. rightly I'd be held accountable. Mm, that's negligence. It's negligence. 
but it's negligence because it's my own child. And we all intuitively know, and there's a, there's a legal distinction uh, between your, your obligations to your own child, your offspring, and your obligations to a stranger. Hmm. And one way in which this analogy breaks down is, um, I mean, I don't know how, how people's sort of um, biology is, but this isn't where babies come from. Hmm. They aren't randomly strapped to you overnight. Um, they're your offspring. And that leads me on to, I guess, a second point that, that, that there's a difference in relationship. You know, your own child, you have certain obligations, duty of care, and we've established already that it's a living human being. They are already your child. You have a duty of care. But, but, but that leads on to another point, which is, you know, where do babies come from? they don't come out of thin air mm. and 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 yes there there is the very difficult and thankfully at least in this country very <laughs> rare comparatively case of, of rape you know where, where it is not the product of consensual sex but the overwhelming majority is the product of consent consensual sex mm. that's where babies come from mm -hmm. and so it's it's not like this 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 thing is just uh strapped to you against your will N nothing you did to, to 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 make that a possibility or a likelihood uh, babies come from sex mm. and so it is a, a baby is a natural consequence of sex which is overwhelmingly um consensual in the cases which which lead to abortion in this country yeah, well, thank God, thank God, rape is so rare that you know that that's not like a major concern of this discussion. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always amazed at the way men can so cavalierly sort of dismiss the reality of rape. Right. Um, and its implications. And I should like be used to it now, um, but I'm still shocked um, at how little men seem to understand like reproductive anatomy and, and how it actually works and how much moral entitlement they want to grant to, you know, embryos and, and fertilized eggs, despite the fact that, that human fertilization is actually a wildly inefficient process that that fails to pass nature's own test the overwhelming majority of the time in fact in the it was the 2004 council on bioethics i believe michael sandel was a part of it they found 60 to 80 percent of all fertilized eggs spontaneously abort for reasons they don't understand. And of those that go on to implant, a full third of them will miscarry for reasons we don't understand. And so it's just absolutely wild to me, this move toward limiting abortion and insisting on this duty of care, when the odds are, one, pregnancy is terribly inefficient and likely not to last on its own terms. And so, and, and particularly on a religious ground, because if, if, if this is a religious argument, your God's got it set up that most of these fertilized eggs aren't going to make it. So it's... Yeah. Uh, which I guess going back to the Don Marquis point about like how it's, oh, you know, there are a million, you know, contestants if it's, uh, if it's for big uh, combinations. Uh, if the, the point of that is to say, well, it's, it's very unlikely that in any given case you can have a valuable future anyway, you could make the same point here. 
Uh, I'd also say just literally on the um, on the point about it being your own kid uh, that I would think that like most of the idea that we have that there's a special obligation to your particular children uh, isn't purely biological, right? Like in other words, uh, I, I would be much more upset, uh, you know, like at, you know, at the idea of somebody letting their adopted child run into traffic than uh, then, uh, then them not like doing something to care for a, uh, you know, for for a child uh, who was it was theirs, but like they had they had never had any contact with, you know, who was who was put up for adoption, who they had no you know emotional relationship with, you know, whatsoever. And even specifically the violinist case. I mean, if we if we adjust it to say that the uh, that uh, the violinist you've been kidnapped and hooked up to is your long lost child, I don't know that budges my intuitions about the case. Yeah, and so Margaret Olivia Little, who has still my favorite paper on the on abortion, makes a distinction. She uses this an not analogy. She uses this example that she comes up with to make a distinction between what she calls um, social fathers and biological fathers to sort of test these notions. And just as you said here, we have different conceptions based on what people owe to one another by virtue of the relationships that they are in. And so if somebody gives up their right to a child at birth or before birth, and that child comes to need, say, like a blood transfusion or a kidney or something, and the biological father is contacted and refuses, we might think, oh, you know, not great, but like, okay, but if the social father who's been raising this child and acting as his father and showing up for baseball games or piano recitals or whatever refuses to do so, we see that as a much more serious moral failing. And what she wants to draw our attention to here is that we can't get clear about the ethics of abortion if we treat abortion or we treat pregnancy as though it's a relationship that has already been entered instead of a negotiation about whether or not you want to enter this relationship. And this person, I don't know who his name is and don't tell me because I don't want to waste brain cells on it. But he's he's conflating all sorts of things here. When you know he talks about where babies come from, I, I, I wonder what sort of sex ed he must have had growing up because the the preponderance of sex that people have is not procreative right. sex. And what you're consenting to in, in a sex act is, is to, you know, hopefully enjoy yourself right, with right. your partner, not to get pregnant. And, and as Little says in her paper that this sort of consent is not transferable. I consent to sleep with someone. If I consent, you know, to, you know, enjoy them for this period of time, they can't sort of transfer their consent to their offspring to now like take up residence in my body. Yeah. Right. So this is the, like, uh, so this last paper we're talking about abortion intimacy and the uh, duty to gestate uh, takes up exactly the objection that's being raised in the, you know, I don't know my, my, um, I mean, I, I could be totally wrong about this, but the vibe that I get is that probably no sex ed, that was probably homeschooling. Uh, but uh, in any case, that the person in the video that we uh, that we just watched um, is, uh, you know, is raising that, oh, well, look, you know, this is the reason that uh, the, I mean, I don't 
think it's exactly an analogy anyway. I think the point of the violinist argument is a uh, example to test a principle that you know that uh, the right to life allegedly outweighs you know bodily autonomy, uh, but. You know, he thinks it's an analogy that uh, the analogy doesn't hold because even if in that case the right to bodily autonomy and control what happens in your body outweighs uh, the other person's uh, right to life, that's that's totally different because uh, the you know a pregnant woman is not pregnant because of anything analogous to being kidnapped and hooked up to a violinist, except in these super rare rape cases. Uh, be, you know, because. Um, you know, that that's not where babies come from, you know, it comes from sex. And he doesn't quite spell out the argument, but the implied argument seems to be the one that you were just indicating that could that consent to sex equals consent to pregnancy, that it's the equivalent of walking into the lobby of a hospital and saying, I'm ready, find me a violinist and and and, and hook me up. I'm gonna do this. Which even if somebody did do that, by the way, I think we would still say that they had a right to back out. But uh but the so one problem that you're bringing up that Little brings up in this paper is that the the party is is wrong. I mean, like you're saying, like that you're consenting to have sex with person one, uh, and saying that you're willing to again, assuming for the sake of argument that a fetus is a person, that you're willing to let person two live in your body. I mean, like that's it's it's weird to think that consent to one uh, transfers to consent to the other. Yeah, it it doesn't make any sense. And and Little also talks about how just because you know certain activities come with risks doesn't mean you're committed to a certain course of action should those risks be realized. So for example, you know, he uses the example of, of a three-year-old getting kidnapped. And I'm, I'm going to set aside moral luck entirely um, for the time being. Maybe if later we'll come back to it if it if it seems to be relevant. But tweak his example a little bit. And imagine you're you're driving a car, which we know is, you know, the leading cause of death for people between the age of like five to twenty-nine. It's the eighth leading cause of death overall for eight all age groups. But let's say you're driving what your car one day and you know you're doing everything you're supposed to, but you know it's rainy or whatever. You you spin out on oil. You've taken all the necessary precautions you could, but life being what it is, disaster happens. And you happen to strike a child who ran out into the street after their ball, right? We'll we'll borrow Nagel's example. And you know this this child is, you know, you, you've injured this child in such a way that they are in need of a lung, right? right? And it just so happens you, the driver of the car, are a perfect genetic match to donate a lung to this child. It doesn't seem like you are morally obligated to give your lung to this child, despite the fact that you are directly responsible for why this child is in need of your organ. And so it seems suspect to me that people with wombs, by virtue of, of having wombs, come to have fewer rights to their own organs upon being born than they did prior. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so the, the title of the paper is Abortion, Intimacy, and the Duty to Gestate. Uh, and that that last part, you know, kind of gives you a, um, you know, a sense of the, the specific twist on the, the debate in this paper that, uh, I mean, even with Thompson, I mean, you could you could make, uh, I, I think you could extend the argument in, you know, in, in different ways to make some of these points that, uh, yeah, if you're moving to, um, you know, if you're 
regularly, you know, having consensual sex or slightly into your uh, your prospects of uh, a pregnancy, but move to a uh, you know the society of music lovers and Thompson's paper that you know kidnaps you if you uh, if like society of music lovers kidnappings are a common social problem and you knowingly move from a neighborhood with a uh, very low society of music lovers activity to one where it's a bigger problem. Uh, and you do that knowing that, you know, you're slightly increasing, you know, your risk of being kidnapped, uh, but you don't do it because you want to be kidnapped. Uh, then, then I don't think we would normally say that you're therefore consenting uh, to uh, to be kidnapped and, and hooked up to uh, to the violinist. But the issue that Little really wants to zero in on here is specifically that it's, you know, okay, we can talk about bodily autonomy in general and, you know, you, you shouldn't have to give up your lung, you know, whatever, but, uh, but that when um, people are denied, being denied the right to decide whether or not to remain pregnant, uh, there's this very specific thing that they're being asked to do, which is which is which is share their body with another for the sake of argument, you know, person. It's a what's what's being asked is a is a duty to gestate, you know, this new life. Yeah, and I think very often what's missing in these debates surrounding abortion is what Little is trying to get at, which is that pregnancy is a tremendously intimate, vulnerable thing that changes your whole life. And without taking that into account, without taking fetal geography, without talking about this like fundamental enmeshment, you really can't get clear about what's at stake. She's got this really, you know, sort of funny line that it makes me laugh every time I read it, where she blames this all on John Locke. And she says, we keep coming to these debates trying to solve it as, as though it's based on property, which fundamentally takes for granted that you have two distinct entities, but you don't in the case of abortion or pregnancy. You have two entities that are relying on one metabolic system, one cardiovascular system, one endocrine system. And that's a lot. Yeah, right. I mean, this this is every uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's some great stuff in this uh, this paper, which is uh, she's going into it. Uh, I uh, read it on your recommendation last year. I want to say uh, that I had yeah. Every time I, I taught this topic, I just done the first two papers that we talked about. Uh, but I, I you mentioned it to me uh, when I was on your podcast a long time ago, and. Uh, and uh, and then I asked for the link again because of a, a debate that I was doing about abortion last year, uh, and and in it, you know, she she goes into all this detail about the sort of uh, extreme intimacy of what somebody is being forced to do if they're being forced to uh, to remain you know pregnant that they're uh, that uh, that every you know that like you're being forced to do this thing where every breath you take is oxygenating, you know, the blood of, uh, of, of another, you know, of another developing being. So this is a really extreme, like, you know, we can, um, you know, we can talk about, you know, exactly what the limits of, you know, bodily autonomy are. If you're, you know, if, if we decide it's like, okay, we're not going to go, we're not going to spend a year inside again. So, you know, if necessary, we'll hold you down and, you know, stick the syringe of J and J into your veins. You know that that's that's a uh, that 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 would be some degree 
of a violation of bodily autonomy. But this is a really extreme violation of bodily autonomy when you're saying that somebody has a duty to gestate. Yeah, and that's what comes out of this. If you argue that abortion is immoral, then the people who are capable of getting pregnant, should they find themselves in that circumstance, have a moral obligation to gestate. And that just seems sort of wild, especially when you take into consideration the risks that are associated with pregnancy. For example, right? I'm going to read this. I don't have this stored in my memory. Um, one study in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology reported that anywhere from 87 to 94 percent of women will endure some type of complication from childbirth, with 31 percent of them experiencing complications beyond six months postpartum. Another study found that as many as 45% of women will experience complications affecting their pelvic floor, resulting in incontinence to severe pain to severe disability. Additionally, up to 15% of women will suffer postpartum depression after giving birth, which accounts for 12.75% of all psychiatric admissions for women during the postpartum period. Yeah, so... Right. I mean, this is actually, we could go back to the Judith Jarvis Thompson paper and, and make a related point because one of the things that I actually find the most powerful in, in Thompson's paper isn't even the um, the sort of science fiction thought experiments that are, are what's most memorable or sort of what, what the most time is spent on, uh, but her point uh, about Katie Genovese, uh, who uh, was uh, allegedly uh, stabbed while something like I don't know, two dozen people or something watched from, from their uh, apartment balconies in New York. Uh, I think that's in the time since Thompson's paper was written, this was debunked, but this was like a widely believed urban legend that all these people watched this happening at the time. And she makes the point that none of those people would have actually been legally liable for doing that. You know, that, uh, that they're, you know, that even just like picking up a phone and calling 911 is more than we, um, you know, then we typically legally require people to uh, to do to save the life of another person. Uh, whereas tying into the quote from from Little that you just read, uh, when you legally require somebody to, to remain pregnant, I mean, you're you're required this incredibly intimate level of enmeshment that comes with pretty severe risks. Yeah, and I think this might be a good time to to say that. I don't actually believe that most people who are against abortion sincerely give two craps about fetuses or their future of value or their well-being, and that a lot of this has to do with policing women's sexuality. Because if there was a real desire to limit the number of abortions, we have enough data now. We know what works. We know it's access to health care. We know it's access to contraception. We know it's it's things like paid maternity leave. We know things like subsidized child care reduces rates of abortion. And in the same places like Mississippi, where you have these, you know, these abortion bans or these fetal cardiac activity bills, as Jennifer Gunter suggests they be called instead of heartbeat bills. They're doing the opposite of that. They have abstinence-only sex education. They did not expand the ACA. They have some of the highest rates of teen pregnancy. This is not about protecting the unborn or protecting women. This is 
explicitly about policing women's sexuality. Right. Well, uh, I would, if you could uh, stick around for the first few minutes of the uh, post game, I would love to put a little bow on the discussion uh, if you have time. Sure. Uh, but uh, we are uh, so got to end the uh, the main show. Uh, we're going to go into the uh, post game for uh, for patrons. We're going to finish the discussion with uh, Jamie there. Also, David Slavic is going to uh, pop on a little bit later to uh, talk about uh, the Grimes comments about uh, artificial uh, intelligence, just as a little uh, relief at the uh, at the end of the show. Uh, so uh, thanks everybody for uh, for for watching. Uh, really uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jamie, for uh, for coming on. Uh, and uh, the Heidegger Marcuse act, uh, episode we teased earlier is going to drop for patrons on Thursday. Left is best. <laughs>